Father, be kind to us this morning. May the words of that song sink deep into our souls. May, may we see who we are before you and see who you are above us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear now as your word comes to us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. In the back end of Matthew chapter 4, we find that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease, sickness among all the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. That's where we find ourselves this morning. It's where we're going to find ourselves for the next several months, as Daniel mentioned, um, sitting before Jesus uh, in a crowd, adhering and listening for his <clears throat> teaching. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, and it is found in the fifth chapter. It starts in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. If you'd like to turn there in your Bibles portion we're going to look at begins in verse 3. And I think you guys will have to do the slides for me again, the service. Thank you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and, falsify, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for the, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What Jesus is talking about centrally in this little portion of Scripture is the place and the path of blessing. It's, it's a place where we can live and be blessed by God. Some have rendered that expression, blessing, happy. But since the right quantity of Briar's ice cream can make me happy, I think Jesus means more than just happy. To be blessed is to be in the place of God's favor, where he is pleased with you, and he pours out that pleasure on you. On Saturday mornings, we are spectators in an eight-year-old basketball league, and there's Ten little boys scurrying around on the floor, desperately trying to learn the game of basketball and shoot at the right goal and things like that. And yesterday, I witnessed something that was fascinating to me. I watched a little boy bring the ball down the floor by himself, 
And he was not doing what the other little boys do when they bring it down. He was not looking at the ball furiously. He was not doing what he was supposed to be doing, though. He was not scanning the floor to see where his teammates were. He wasn't even looking at his coach. He was looking next to me, just to my right, as he walked down the floor. Because just to my right was his mom. And more than anything, he wanted his mom to see him and to know that she was pleased with him as he brought the ball, this little Michael Jordan bringing the ball down the floor. The pleasure of his mom was what he wanted. He wanted to be in that place of blessing, and she was happily giving it to him. Um, the place of blessing is a place where you are happy, where you are content. It's the place you've always dreamed of. It's the place you were made for. Haddon Robinson has written about the Sermon on the Mount, and he helps us think about this place of blessing by describing what the Greeks thought about an island off their coast, uh, the island called Cyprus, and it was called um, the Blessed Isle. The idea was, he says, that those who lived on Cyprus never had to leave its shores in order to have all they needed to be content. They had natural resources and minerals. They had a beautiful place to live with fruit and flowers. The island was self-contained. No one had to search for the needs and wants of life. He says when we are blessed by God, we are in a sense self-contained. That is, our happiness does not come from our circumstances or by accidents or through diligent searches. It comes because we stand approved before the creator of the universe. It's a place where we are content with the blessing of God. The, the place of blessedness is a place where you are poor, but you inherit a kingdom. Where you mourn, but you find comfort. Where you are meek, but the whole earth will be yours. Where you hunger and thirst deep in your soul, and you are satisfied. A place where you will see God and be called his sons and daughters, where your reward will far outweigh any suffering. That place is the place where you live content in the pleasure of the king. That's, that's what Jesus means by this place where we are blessed. And in these beatitudes, as they're called, these blessings, Jesus is extending two main things to us this morning. First of all, he's extending to you an invitation to live in that place where you will sense and be content in the favor of God, the pleasure of God on your life. And he's extending to us, to us who are living there, the hope that this will in fact come to pass. Now, this comes to us in these eight or so kind of proverbial phrases. Um, we want to look at the front half of those today, the first four or so of those. Um, but first, uh, let me issue a qualification. Anybody know what that is? Excuse me? Iceberg. Technically, this is actually the tip of the iceberg. Because icebergs, as you know, reside mostly below the waterline. All we see is the tip. And so this morning, we're going to walk through just four little phrases from the Beatitudes, from the Sermon on the Mount. I am going to show you the utmost tip of the iceberg. They are worthy of your reflection all week long. 
So I just want you to be aware of that. I'm going to just expose you to what's going on here. Starting in verses 3 through 6, this is what we'll talk about today. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And in these first verses, Jesus is inviting us to be poor, to mourn, to be meek, whatever that is, and to hunger and thirst. Isn't that great? Isn't that what you got up going to church hoping would happen to you today, that you could be poor and mourn and hungry and thirsty and meek? Um, You know, it's not what we would normally put right at the top of our list, but it is, according to Jesus himself, the one who walked this path before us perfectly and beautifully, it is in these things that we stand in the most blessed place on earth. We stand content in the pleasure of God in these things. So let's look at each one of these first four Beatitudes one at a time. The first is in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's an expansion on Luke. If you read Luke, he records it just as Blessed are the poor. Matthew tells us that the idea here is poor in spirit. What is that? What does that mean? If you have the kids' questions you're working through this morning, one of the options is that it means you don't have any money to put in the offering. That's not what it means, kids. Don't circle that answer. Okay. To be poor in spirit. It's not the same exactly as being poor, but it often and most easily accompanies being poor. The poor are often oppressed and afflicted. They are powerless and without hope. They have no resources to help themselves. Poverty in spirit is like that. We have nothing we can help within us that we can help ourselves with. We have no resources. Um, we are poor as a beggar with absolutely no resources. Jesus paints a picture of this in another one of his teachings in Luke chapter 18. He's teaching to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. If you were hearing this story, you would think one a good guy, the Pharisee, and one a bad guy, the tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. This is your first clue that you've got it wrong. He prayed publicly about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
poverty of spirit is to be like that tax collector. It's to be like a beggar before God. It's being able to bring nothing to our relationship with God except our great need for mercy. To be poor in spirit, I would say, in a word, is to be humble on steroids. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Hedden Robinson describes a time when he really realized what it means to be poor in spirit. He says, my mother died when I was a boy. My dad raised me. He really gave his life for me. One time in college, I asked him why he didn't get married again. And my father said, well, I wasn't sure that I could marry someone that would take care of you as a mother. And I just didn't want to take that chance. He says, when he got older, he came to live with us, and he became senile and began to lose track of time, and he'd walk around the house at night and knock on the bedroom doors. He was a child, and I became a parent to him. One day we were home, and he wanted to go outside, and I got him ready, but it was a cold day, and he quickly came back inside. And then he went out and came back in again, and after about the third time out and in, I became very irritated, and I said, look, either go out or stay in. He wanted to go out again, but he had no sooner gotten out than he knocked on the door. He said, I was furious. He wanted to go out, but he had no sooner gotten out than he knocked on the door. He looked at me a bit confused. He stood there in the door and didn't go either way, so I hauled off and swatted him. He says, I I could have punched him in the mouth and knocked him to the ground. When I hit him, he gave me that quizzical look that old people have. He says, at that moment, I could have killed him. It's a horrible memory, he says, because of the ugliness inside me that day. With a glimpse like that, I realized the bankruptcy, the depravity of my life. He says, I wish dad were still here but I couldn't honestly tell him I didn't mean it. I meant it that day. We can excuse my behavior and say, oh, old people get that way. They can be irritating. The truth is, he says, I had a flash, the flash of a murderer. To be poor in spirit is to admit that you are a terrific sinner at your core. And I'm ashamed to admit that far too often my beautiful wife has been spurned and my dear children have been lashed out at and a pretty good dog has been kicked. Do you see how poor you are in spirit? Today, Jesus is inviting us. By the way, an invitation from the Lord of the universe comes to us with the force of a mandate. He is inviting us to admit that we are poverty-stricken spiritually. We are beggarly poor. Will you admit that? 
at the close of the service today, if God were to prompt you, would you come down publicly and bow down here in front of God and everybody as a sign that you are absolutely dirt poor? Bring nothing to God. It's not the only way, but it's a good way. If God prompted you to do that, would you come and do that? Or would your pride stop you? Last year, I was doing some reading and thinking about prayer, and I was reading about the way the Eastern Church prays, the Orthodox Christian churches pray, and they pray different than we do, way, way different than we do. One of the prayers that they love to pray is a very simple little prayer. They don't just pray it once. They pray it over and over and over and over. Some of the Desert Fathers used to pray these prayers thousands of times a day. And the prayer that I have in mind is simply called the Jesus Prayer, and it comes out of that story with the tax collector in part. And it just goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And while I'm not sure about thousands of times a day, um, surely this prayer ought to be on our lips and reflect the posture of our heart before God. In great poverty, like a beggar. So Jesus invites us to be poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He gives us not only that invitation, but he gives us this hope along with it. The promise that the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom, will be ours. The kingdom, that's where God rules. Um, all the subjects of his kingdom, that's where they taste fully of his great goodness and love and mercy and beauty and rescue and protection. It's the kingdom. It's a future kingdom in its fullness. And we wait for it. But it's present now, and we taste it. When we come to know Christ, we taste it. When we fight sin, we taste it. When we lift our voices and our hands in worship, we taste it. It's a beautiful kingdom. And to be in that kingdom is to be under the loving, protective, merciful, powerful, beautiful rule of God, now in part, one day fully. And poverty of spirit, Jesus says, is the entry ticket. To get into the kingdom, you have to be poor in spirit. That's, that is saying, I cannot get into the kingdom on my own. I am a terrible sinner. I need a savior to bear my sin and make a way in for me. That's poverty of spirit. And it holds to up for us the promise of the kingdom. Poverty of spirit is also key to life inside that kingdom. It says... I cannot live worthy of this king and the ways of his kingdom. I just can't do it. I need help every day to honor my king. I need to pray the Jesus prayer, not just once, but I need to pray it every day. And not just once a day, but often every day. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The poor in spirit are given the hope of the promise of the blessing of the kingdom of God. So Jesus is inviting us to be poor in spirit, to be humble on steroids before God. Next, he says, blessed are those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. It's another really puzzling statement by Jesus. Some have paraphrased it this way. Um, Happy are the sad. You know, it's a puzzle to us. It's not the way we look at things. You know, you think about mourning, you think of black, getting ready for a funeral kind of sense. And we mourn for lots of reasons, but they typically center around a great loss. Maybe the loss of a pet or a loved one especially, or maybe an extraordinary opportunity. Um, we often mourn our losses, but on our best days, we not only mourn our losses, but we would mourn the losses of others. We would hear of the loss of another, and we would grieve with them. That's one of the marks of the church. One suffers, all suffer. And we would mourn on those good days the injustices of our world when we read about mothers whose babies are starving in Darfur and whose daughters are kidnapped and brutally assaulted by that Janjaweed militia just while they're out gathering firewood to feed their families. We mourn those kind of things on our good days. And while all of this is caught up in Jesus' mention of those who mourn, I think right at the center is probably another focus. That is that we would mourn for the suffering of God. The suffering that our sin causes God. When I first became a Christian, I was a teenager, and I remember just ensnared in a number of adolescent sins and things I just couldn't seem to shake free of. And one of the things I did to fight against those sins was just to think about how my sin must have grieved my God. Just to think about that. Just to meditate on that. And just to grieve that with him. You know, when we moved into this building, some of you have been here long enough to remember, uh, first service, we had large timbers up here at front. And together, we, we took a hammer, a big sledge, and a big spike, and we drove those nails into those timbers with our own hands. We could hear it echoing through this room as we just remembered that it was our sin that held him there. It's too rare a thought to think of the suffering the Savior endured for our sin and to mourn that that had to happen and the grief that our sin causes God and that it still happens. It's good for us. Every once in a while, just to Focus on that cross and think about what it must have been like to suffer on it and what our part was in that suffering. Jesus invites us to mourn our sin and the suffering that it has brought and brings to our Savior. But he also offers us a hope it's the hope that we will be comforted. Isaiah expresses this beautifully. He says, as he thinks about the great day of the Lord, he says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine. Some of you can reflect and meditate on that. The best of meats and the finest of wines will be there. 
On this mountain, he'll destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He'll swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. There will come a day when the comfort of God himself will swallow up our grief and our mourning and it will be no more. The Lord has spoken. That is the hope of those who mourn for their sin and the sin of our world. We taste of it right now. As God's mercy cleanses us from sin right now, we are tasting of his comfort. When you come to the Lord's table and you know that his grace brought to you by Jesus' death on the cross is enough for you, you're tasting of that comfort. Jesus invites us to mourn, to mourn as only lovers can mourn. Because if one thing can be said about people who mourn, they are people who love. To mourn as lovers of God who will be comforted by God himself on that day. That's our hope. Jesus says, be poor in spirit. Mourn your sin. And in the next verse, he says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. What on earth is a meek? We don't, we don't use it. When was the last time someone said to you, my, you appear meek today? It's a word that's like disappeared from our vocabulary. If we think of it at all, we think that meek means weak. Okay? It's just, uh, it's been displaced in our vocabulary by the word wimp. That's what we typically would think of when we think of someone who's meek. Who wants to be a wimp? Definitely not the German philosopher Nietzsche. He said, uh, one writer wrote about him and his thinking. He said, Nietzsche said that when we look at the ethic of Jesus bound up in the Beatitudes as part of the Sermon on the Mount, we are listening, Nietzsche said, uh, to the most seductive lie history has ever heard. That's what he thought about the Sermon on the Mount. When Nietzsche came to blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, he rephrased it and said, assert yourself, it is the arrogant who will take over the earth. To be meek has been likened more to being gentle than being weak. And it finds its best portraits in the Bible in the person of Moses, who rescued his people from Egypt and, and led them in armed battle against foes, hardly weak, it's reflected in Jesus himself. He was meek and lowly, some of the older translations say. And you can ask those money changers who've got stripes on their back whether Jesus was weak or not. He's hardly weak. To be meek is someone who, is suffer, who will suffer indignities against themselves without complaint. Someone who suffers well wrongs done to them. I think perhaps most importantly for me, it's someone who's not self-assertive. The meek put others' interests above their own. There's a fine Christian college in the Midwest in Indiana called Taylor University. 
years ago, they were pleased to learn that an African student named Sam was going to be enrolling in their school. This was back before it was common for international students to be on campus, and they felt like it was a real honor to have him be there. He was a bright young man with great promise, and the school was pleased to have him there. When he arrived on campus, the president of the university of himself gave him a tour and took him through the dorms and showed him all the different dormitories and facilities that they had. When the tour was over, the president asked Sam where he would like to live, and the young man replied, If there is a room that no one wants, give that room to me. That's me. If there is a room that no one wants, give that room to me. The author of this article says, If there's a job that no one wants to do, I'll do that job. That's me. If there's a kid that no one wants to eat lunch with, I'll eat with that kid. That's being meek. If there's a piece of toast that's burnt, I'll take that piece. That's being meek. If there's a parking space that's far away from the church, I'll park in that space. If there's a service time that's less convenient for people, I'll worship at that service. If there's a hardship someone has to endure, I'll take that hardship. If there's a sacrifice someone needs to make, I'll make that sacrifice. I think that's what Jesus has in mind when he talks about being meek. Sam shows us what it means to be meek. Unlike me, I show us what it's like not to be meek. When my wife is substitute teaching on those days, I have lunch, making lunch duty. So I make lunch. It used to be when we had lots of kids, it was like a cafeteria. I had all these lunches. But now I just have two kids. I make two lunches. And uh, I get home after work the other day, and one of my children says to me, I didn't eat lunch today because you gave me the wrong lunch. And I thought for a minute, and I, I reflected on the morning. I said, no, no. I made the lunch and left it on the counter. You put the wrong lunch in your lunchbox. And the, the child says, well, you put the lunchbox right there by that lunch. And so I reflected on it for a minute, and I said, no, no, you got the lunchbox, and you put it by that lunch. And the chase is on, okay? And I am going to run them down until I hear the word uncle, okay? And the fact that I was right about the lunch, I was. Um... And that my child was not taking responsibility for their screw-ups. They weren't. <laughs> Pale in comparison to the reality that I had abandoned meekness and gone to bat for me. Perhaps especially helpful for our church where we live is a quote from Hudson Amardine, who says, I am persuaded that much of the confusion and conflict which besets the Christian church today is not due to great issues of theology. Instead, it's because brilliant leaders have not been willing to act with meekness. Instead, they have gained a following, and then to maintain this following, have felt obliged to discredit those who would oppose them. Jesus is inviting us today to be meek, 
to be like him. And oh, that we would be meek because Jesus holds out for us the hope, the promise that the meek will gain the very thing that the self-assertive long for and strive for and can never quite obtain. The meek are going to inherit the whole earth. Um, Revelation, it's interesting, the Bible ends with this teaching. In Revelation 21, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. He who overcomes will inherit all this. I will be his God, and he will be my son. It's the language of the Beatitudes, of the blessings of God. There will come a day when the whole earth, made new and pure and free from the pollution and desecration and enmity of sin, will be our inheritance, those of us who choose the way of meekness. Jesus invites us to be meek, to be gentle and others-focused, not self-assertive, and offers us that great hope that we'll inherit everything that the non-meek are so fruitlessly striving for. The whole earth is going to be for us. So Jesus says, um, be poor in spirit and mourn your sin. Be meek. And lastly, he invites us um, to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they, they will be filled. They'll be satisfied. You know, hunger and thirst are a thing we know in our minds, but they are foreign to it. Almost all of us who live in America, we work hard to make sure we don't experience anything even close to real hunger or thirst. There are whole industries that design portable food and drink so you will never have to experience a tinge of it. It's right there in your backpack, in your fanny pack. It's there. Okay. We really don't know what it means in any serious way. And I've been watching a Ken Burns documentary on World War II called The War. And one of the things that he documents in there is a thing called the Bataan Death March. It took place in the Pacific, World War II. The men there were marched 85 miles in six days on one mess kit of rice. There were other Americans who made the march of death in 12 days with no food whatsoever. Not a speck. At Corregidor... In the same area, 7,000 Americans, 5,000 Filipino prisoners were packed for one week with no food on a concrete pavement 100 yards square, two football fields, 12,000 prisoners. One water spigot for the 12,000. The average wait to fill a canteen was 12 hours. They got their first food, a mess kit of rice and a can of sardines after seven days. See, the imagery when Jesus says we hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's not I want a snack kind of hunger or I want a soda kind of thirst. It's a I have to have this to live kind of hunger and thirst. It's more like Patan than Wakefield, if you know what I mean. Righteousness, it's another one of those huge terms, you know, tip of the iceberg terms that just includes so much, but right at the heart of it, I think would be this insatiable longing to be right with God and to walk rightly with God. Okay. Be righteous. Um, you know, somebody said that hunger is the greatest motivation in the world. 
And so like a hungry man craves food or a thirsty man, I mean a really thirsty man, longs for water, Jesus is inviting us to long to walk rightly with God like that. It's a deep longing to know God and to be near him and to please him, to be right with him. It's a hunger and thirst for this broken world to be made right with God too. For children to be fed and clothed and safe. For families to stay together and make it. For rivers to run clean and clear and malaria and AIDS to be banished. For matters of race to never lead to hate or isolation. Jesus invites us to thirst and hunger for these kinds of things to be made right in us and in our world. He says, because if you do, he says, I promise you, one day you're going to be filled. You're going to be satisfied. There is coming a day when those who long for justice in a broken world will see it come. Revelation says it's going to come riding on a white horse. There will come a day when all wrongs will be made right and all unjust suffering will end for old and young, boys and girls, black and white, and every shade in between. Jesus says we can taste of that right now. That same kind of satisfaction for our righteousness in him. He says, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Again, the closing words of the Bible, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Whoever hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be satisfied. So today, in, in just these few verses, Jesus is doing two things for us. He is offering hope to those who are poor in spirit. Hope to those who mourn. Hope to those who are meek. Hope to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're here today and you're in the blackest hole you've ever been and all you can see is that you are a screw-up and a sinner. I don't have to tell you that. It makes you wince whenever I say it. Today, if you're poor in spirit and overwhelmed by the blackness of your sin, Jesus is promising the hope of the kingdom of heaven to you today. If you are mourning, if someone you love has been torn from you or has suffered an unspeakable wrong, if you are mourning the sin that darkens your door every day, it seems like, Jesus is promising to bring you the comfort you need for your deepest sorrow. If you're meek, if you are refusing to climb that ladder and stand at the top and tell everybody, look at me, look how important and successful I am, please treat me that way. If instead you've foregone personal reward for the good of others and suffered wrong without rising up and fighting back, 
Know that you're going to be rewarded beyond your wildest dreams. You're going to inherit the new earth. A place of incomprehensible perfection and beauty. And if you're here today hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for wrongs done to you and to others to be made right, you have Jesus' promise that he will be back for that very purpose. You will be satisfied one day. But Jesus is also inviting us. He's inviting us to a poverty in spirit, to a compassionate mourning, to gentle meekness and longing for things to be right in our hearts and our world. Jesus is inviting you to humble yourself. And so the question is, will you do that? Will you humble yourself? If God were to prompt you, would you come down here and bow low in front of God and everybody? Or would your pride keep you back? We'd like to close our service as the worship team comes to lead us. Bowing low and praying. You can do it here or you can do it there. You can do it in your seat or you can do it on the floor. I wonder though, will you bow low before the good king? And I'd like to lead us in a prayer that comes from long ago from a book called The Valley of Vision and I'll read it over us as we bow. Let's bow. Oh, blessed Lord Jesus, before your cross I kneel and I see the heinousness of my sin, my iniquity that caused you to be made a curse, the evil that excites the severity of your divine wrath. Show me the enormity of my guilt by the crown of thorns, the pierced hands and feet, the bruised body, the dying cries. Your blood is the blood of incarnate God, its worth infinite, its value beyond all thought, infinite must be the evil and guilt that demands such a price. Sin is my malady, it's my monster, my foe, my viper. Born in my birth, alive in my life, strong in my character, dominating my faculties, following me like a shadow, intermingling with my every thought. It's my chain that holds me captive in the empire of my soul. Sinner that I am, why should the sun give me light? Why should the air supply me breath? The earth bear my tread. Its fruits nourish me. Its creatures serve my ends. Yet your compassions yearn over me. Your heart hastens to my rescue. Your love endured my curse. Your mercy bore my deserved stripes. Oh Lord, let me walk humbly in the lowest depths of humiliation. Bathed in your blood, 
tender of conscience, triumphing gloriously as an heir of salvation.